If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to 1 Peter, first chapter. We'll be reading that entire chapter, 1 through 26. 1 Peter 1. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bethany, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy and in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy before I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. For your aimless conduct you received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained, therefore the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you through his belief in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever because all flesh is a grass, it says grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. 
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning because we're hungry. Hungry to hear from you and to know you better. You told the children of Israel in the wilderness that you humbled them and caused them to hunger. You then fed them with manna from heaven in order to teach them. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Help us this morning to feast on your word and to grow in our love and appreciation of all that it teaches us about you and about your only begotten Son. We humbly ask this in Christ's name. Amen. purpose behind Peter's writing this letter is his exhortation to the faithful in Jesus Christ. He wants them to come to a, to a denial of the world as well as to a strong contempt for the world. He desires that they have this contempt so they can be free from the fleshly appetites and all other worldly enticements so that they can aspire with their whole soul to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. Such that being lifted by hope, endued with patience, built up in courage, and fortified with perseverance, they will be strengthened in order to defeat temptation. It will also give them the courage, the courage they need to, to live a life of faith and hope in Christ Jesus, regardless of the circumstances that come their way. With this theme in mind, he begins immediately to proclaim the grace of God given in Jesus Christ. He does this while making it clear this grace, this wonderful grace, is received by faith and possessed by hope. This is to help the believer lift their mind and heart above this world. Therefore, a large part of this letter is dedicated to calling God's elect to a life of holiness. He warns that no that to fail in living out this life of holiness will bring disaster. He reminds them that even though they are born again, they're still spiritual infants and in need of constant care and feeding. In order to help them in this walk, he speaks about the persecution Christ received in his earthly walk. Peter calls Christ a stone of stumbling for the unbeliever and a chosen and precious cornerstone for the elect. In this, he reveals the great honor to which God has raised all believers to be his children, members of his family. In this, Peter hopes to make clear the great need the believer has to constantly reflect on his former life, to compare that day with his present life and the grace given him in Christ. For this is the only way, the only way one can continue to develop themselves to this godly life they're called into. This is the same thing we heard in our study from Proverbs on wisdom. Examine your heart in the light of God's wisdom. Peter turns to the everyday life. He turns to how all of this is to be practically worked out. He first calls all believers to a proper attitude of submission, not just to God, but to every authority placed in this world. 
He calls for submission to the government placed over you, for slaves to their masters, for wives to their husbands. He shows through the wife how all believers should be modest and beautiful and winsome in the world through submission. He also shows through the husband how the believer must act toward everyone with humility and kindness. He commands all believers to observe, to do whatever is based in love, compassion, and humility. To do it willingly, to do it willingly because it is these things that will bring believers a peaceful and happy life. We also hear him deal with with one of those subjects that should perk every believer's ears. That would be suffering. Faithful believers working hard to be true to God's word and following his commands seem to fall into so many hard circumstances. And they're always asking, why, Lord? His exhortation is not one of great explanation, but one that calls for patience and perseverance based on the example that Christ gave. Jesus came. He suffered so much when he deserved absolutely none of it. He reminds that since Christ suffered unjustly, those who are called to follow him will also suffer. He says, don't worry. Don't worry so much about the here and now. That's not what's really important. You must remember those in this life that have refused the the wonderful offer of grace given in Christ Jesus. These are the people who will come to an unhappy end. But believers have much happiness to look forward to. Therefore, your responsibility as a believer is to go out and minister to those who are unbelievers, to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, to open their eyes to see and their ears to hear. Now, we know only the Holy Spirit can do that, but we have a responsibility to put the material before them so the Holy Spirit can take it and use it in their hearts. Witnessing is one of the greatest things we can do. It's the work we were called to do. Let's examine this letter for the Apostle Peter, beginning this morning with chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We shall first consider the author, the Apostle Peter. Second, we will look at the recipients and what Peter says about them. Last, we will hear Peter's salutation as he opens his letter. The letter opens with the introduction of its author. The name used is Peter. This was a simple fisherman who was not into titles or long introductions. He simply says that he is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. His name was Simon, son of Jonah, in Matthew 16, 17. In John 1, 42, Jesus changes his name to Cephas in the Arabic or Peter in the Greek. Both mean rock. Why did Jesus change his name to Peter? It certainly wasn't because of his great stability when Christ first met him. Peter was a wishy-washy person. When Christ told him to let his net down and and the catch was so great the nets began to tear, what did Peter do? Peter turns around to Christ and asks him to leave because he knows he is an evil man himself. Later, when Jesus was walking on the water, Peter calls out, asking him to come. 
Christ says, come. Peter steps out of the boat, takes one step. His faith goes away, and Christ has to save him. When Christ comes, says, come to Peter, he steps out of that boat. He was full of faith. What happened to that faith? He looked at the circumstances around him, and it went down with him. When Jesus is telling the disciples of his coming death, Peter rebukes him and tells him, he, and Jesus tells him he's doing the work of Satan at the Last Supper. Peter refuses to let Christ wash his feet. And when he's told that without that he has no part of Christ, he turns around and wants him to wash his whole body. In the garden, he draws his sword in defense of Christ. Then, in the high priest's courtyard, he denies Christ three times. After the crucifixion and resurrection. The, women's te- the women testify of Christ's resurrection. Peter refuses to believe as Christ has been raised until he sees him, until he touches him. Luke 24, verses 38 and 39. And he, Christ, said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Even after Pentecost, Peter would have many lapses in his stability. Paul points out one of them very clearly to us in Galatians uh, regarding his actions around the unsaved, the 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 unregenerate, the Gentiles. I'll get it right in a minute. Simon, the fisherman, was a bold and brash man without a lot of patience. He often put his foot in his mouth or failed to live up to his boasting. Our God is such a good God. When he calls a man and begins a good work in him, he doesn't stop until he has finished that good work. The good work is the changing of that man from a self-centered, bold, and brash man to a humble, wise, God-centered man. A man that can stand firm in the face of all the world can throw at him. Such was what the man Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, was called to do. He was being molded. Molded into such a man from the very moment Christ called him to come and follow him. Peter was the example. The example of what all believers called from this evil and wicked world of selfism could become in Jesus Christ. The thing that made Peter into a rock was his faith and trust in the one who is the true rock, Jesus Christ. When Christ said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, it wasn't Peter, the man, that he was talking about, but the confession that came from Peter's lips that that Jesus was the Christ of God. That's the foundation of the church. It has always been the foundation of the church. Peter didn't, did become later on a, a leader of that church by the grace of God. Here he tells us about his authority as he calls himself an apostle. Peter declares himself to be a person of authority in the church. Peter does not, as Paul, feel the need to describe how he became an apostle. He assumes everyone will know who he is and with this simple introduction. Now, the term apostle means one who has been sent. 
But when used in the way Peter uses it here, it carries a much broader connotation. Yes, an apostle is one sent by God. But along with his being sent, he is also given the authority of Christ to act and speak on Christ's behalf and in his place on matters of spiritual importance to the church. Peter, in beginning his letter in this way, conclusively establishes that the words he brings in this epistle are the true words of his and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those words carry, because of his office, divine authority. One other point to be made on this is that Peter clearly declares himself an apostle. He only places himself on an equal par with the other apostles. He does not call himself the apostle. Whose apostle is he? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now Christ is given two names here. He is Jesus and he is the Christ. Now when I was younger, I used to think that that was his first name and his last name. And I know a lot of other people thought that too. But that's not the case. The idea here is Jesus is the name of the God-man. This was his name in the flesh. Christ is his title or mediator. Christ is not a name. It's a title. He is Jesus, the Christ. He is the God who has come in the flesh and the Christ who has taken on our sins and delivered us from the curse of death. Peter declares himself to be an apostle of the only begotten Son of God, the God-man, the Redeemer, the Savior. The office Peter has received is a lifetime appointment. With that appointment came the responsibility to go into the whole world and make disciples of men from every nation, tribe, language group out there. He was to teach them all things he had learned from Christ. And that is what he is engaged in in the writing of this letter. He writes this letter to a very specific group of people. Verses 1b and 2a. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Who are these people? They're Jews. Those taken from Israel and Judah and moved by various kings over the centuries into foreign lands. Also some who had fled Jerusalem and had fled the persecution of the church after Pentecost. It is the use of the name pilgrim or stranger, some translate it, that identifies them as Jews. The Greek calls them sojourners of the dispersion, so we know they're Jews. He lists the lands, and we find they're all in Asia Minor, somewhere around in the area of Turkey. Why is Peter writing to these people? Peter was given the specific responsibility of ministering the gospel to the Jews, while Paul was given the specific responsibility of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter writes this letter to the congregation God has given him to those scattered Jews in Asia Minor. Peter also describes them by their spiritual condition. They are the elect or the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. These pilgrims or strangers were clearly shown through the theme and mood of this letter 
to be a poor and persecuted people for the sake of Jesus Christ. Yet, we see they are held in high esteem before their God and are in the most honored state of any creature can be during this life. They are the elect of God. They hold this place of honor because they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Election means to be elected, chosen to an office such as David being chosen to be king or the disciples being chosen as apostles. It can also mean being selected to a place of special privilege as we find in Deuteronomy 7.6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people to himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Election has an important meaning. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He chose you. He chose you to believe in Jesus Christ. That a wonderful thought. This is the election Peter's referring to. Your election into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. This is salvation by the gracious decree of God. This takes your work out of your your work out of your salvation. You don't have any work in salvation. Salvation is the exclusive work of God. You no longer have to work to earn your salvation. The works you do now are works of appreciation to show your, your, your love for God who gave you this great gift. God purposed from the beginning to save a people unto himself out of the sinful mass of humanity and to bring them, those he saved, to himself by means of Christ's sprinkled blood and the work of the Holy Spirit. In this, Peter speaks of our salvation being according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This idea of foreknowledge, it's been around a long time. It causes some people a great problem, but it should not. First, it could be understood in the way of an astronomer, the way he would, would know of an eclipse that's coming. He can use mathematics to determine the orbits of the sun, moon, and earth. He can see they cross paths, thus the moon hiding the sun from our view for a few seconds. This is a type of foreknowledge, but it is not what Peter is talking about. Some people mistakenly apply this idea of foreknowledge to what Peter says and believe God looks down the corners of time and he sees who it is that's going to choose salvation, who's going to believe in those he elects. This idea would make God dependent on the actions of his creatures instead of, their, instead of him being the cause of their actions. If God is sovereign, and the Bible clearly declares he is, then he is not and never can be dependent on anyone or anything outside of himself. If God is not sovereign, he's not God. Because that's the whole idea behind God. He is in control of all things. 
The second idea of foreknowledge is based on the decrees that cause things to happen. The death of Christ gives the best picture of this. Acts 2, 23, and I'm reading from the NIV. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Christ's death was not just foreseen. No. It was ordained and ordained by God. God knew it was coming. How did he know he decreed it would be? Isn't that what Acts just said? The man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge? God set it into action. He's the one that decreed what Christ would do, what would happen to Christ. God knew it was coming. How did he know? He decreed it. This shows that his foreknowledge is always based in his decrees. Therefore, it is not dependent in any way on his creatures. What Peter is saying is that these people are elect according to the counsel, ordination, and free grace of God. He also shows how God carries out his decrees. They were elect. They were elect in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. How are you saved? You're saved in the same way. You're sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are saved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is made absolutely clear that the end results of our election is eternal life with Christ in heaven. However, there are some things necessary to be completed before that end is attained eternally. Please understand this. Salvation is the work of God and of God alone. You cannot earn, you cannot purchase your salvation from God. It is a free gift, the working of his grace alone in your heart. Yet there are means that go along with his work in your heart. This sometimes is where lots of Christians get stumbled up. There's a difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is the declarative act. God brings his cavil down and says, you're saved. That's the end of it. You're saved. There's also the work of sanctification. Now you're being molded more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who is doing that molding, who is working through you, bringing you closer and closer to the, to the image of Jesus Christ. These means require your participation, which you're enabled by God's grace to do. You're not doing it on your own. The Holy Spirit's there. It's by his work in you. So you cannot boast in any of this stuff. You don't boast in your salvation. The only thing you have a right to boast in is Jesus Christ. Peter says every elect person must be sanctified by the Spirit and justified by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. God decrees according to Peter for salvation always operates through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the shed blood of Christ. This sanctification is not a federal sanctification. In other words, it is not a once-for-all event. It is a personal and real sanctification of each believer. This begins with the giving of the new heart, and it carries through in a constant molding of the believer. That molding brings the believer more into the image of Jesus Christ every day. 
This molding continues enabling the believer to mortify the flesh, live a more holy life, and grow in his obedience to God's word. Peter shows that it is the Holy Spirit that is the agent of sanctification. It is the Spirit that renews the mind, mortifies the sins of the flesh, and produces the fruits of a Christian life in each believer. In this, we see that the Spirit uses means to accomplish all of this in a believer's life. You understand what means are. Those are things that he has set up specifically for you to do. It's guided by his Holy Spirit for you to participate in the process that he has in your life of molding you more into Jesus Christ. Christ shows this in his prayer in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What are they sanctified unto? It would be obedience. How are they brought into this obedience? By the word of God. God uses his word as the means through which your ears are opened and your heart grows in understanding. Peter explains in 1.22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. God operates within means to bring his people to the point he has decreed them to come. Not only does he use the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification, he also uses, says these people are elect through sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was established by the decree of God that believers were to be sanctified by the Spirit and purified by the merits and blood of of Jesus Christ. These Jews would have understood what Peter meant because they were familiar with the process of sacrifice under the law. Not only was the lamb killed and its blood drained, but that blood was also sprinkled over the ones bringing the sacrifice. This sprinkling denotes the benefits that were ordained and showed their application to those making the offering. Therefore, in Christ's sacrifice, which is the once-for-all offering, his blood, which was typified by the animal blood, was not only shed but sprinkled or communicated to everyone who is an elect member of God's family. You have been washed in blood Jesus Christ. You have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ shed his blood. He went to the cross and died in your place. And that's what we, when we talk about the shedding of his blood, we're always talking about his death. You're washed in his death. You're baptized into his death. You are dead from this world through Jesus Christ. Look at, listen to Romans 3.25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Who set this forth? It was God. He set Christ Jesus forth to be a propitiation, that is an appeasement or a satisfaction before God on account of your sins. He, how, does, how do we come into this sanctification? We come through faith in his shed blood, in his death. What is the promise associated with coming under his blood? The justification of our souls. 
The forensic or legal declaration of our right standing before God is based on what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. This faith in his blood justifies before God. Romans 5, 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It also seals the covenant between God and the believer, which is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Listen to Luke 22:20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. It cleanses from sin, as 1 John 1, 7 tells us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Last, it is the means by which we are guaranteed a place in heaven. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. My friends, please understand. God has elected some men to eternal life, and he has not elected all men, though. God gives those called the qualifications they need to enter heaven. And he gives it to those through a set of means he has appointed. Those means are the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and the communicating of the merits of Jesus Christ through his shed blood. Listen to Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the essence, the very essence of what Peter explains in his opening remarks. You are saved. You are saved by divine decree of God through the divine works of Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Peter gives a salutation to his introduction of this letter. Verse 2b. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Here, Peter explains what he wants to bring them through this epistle. It is grace and peace. He makes them to know God's grace and his unmerited favor. He desires them to understand their salvation is not in any way tied to their own actions. It is a gift of God. Giving to the believer a new heart and a new spirit. With these new additions, he also gives his own Holy Spirit. He gives the spirit to live within them and teach them obedience to the word of God. He does this because it is through the word that their faith will grow and they will learn how to please God in this life. Why learn to please God? So you can show your love and appreciation for the wonderful gift of life he has given you through Jesus Christ. This is your response to the grace given. He also wants them to have peace. The peace he speaks of is peace with God. It is the idea of the double cure we heard about in the hymn, Rock of Ages. Christ brings this double cure of sin. His shed blood not only cleanses of sin, but it also destroys the guilt of sin. So this double cure cleanses you of your sin and removes the guilt of that sin. It makes us pure in God's eyes. Isn't that wonderful? 
God's doing this work for us. It's to make us so we can come and stand boldly before his throne. It gives us confidence as we come to the throne that all is right. Grace and peace are inseparable. You can never have peace apart from grace. Grace cannot work without manufacturing peace of the heart. Solid peace will never be possible without grace first changing the heart and cleansing the soul. Peace without grace, as Matthew Henry says, is just plain out old stupidity. It is true that grace begins without peace, but is only for a short time. These two gifts are to first be understood as coming only from the heart of God. When he imparts grace, he will not stop, but will build grace upon grace. And every true believer will always earnestly seek the improvements and the multiplication of this grace in their lives. Isn't that what you want? To be made more and more like Jesus Christ every day. My friends, Peter delivers in these few words a powerful understanding of the salvation we're given in Jesus Christ. He makes it absolutely clear. Our salvation is based in the free act of God's grace and not in our own works. God chooses his people and once he chooses, there is nothing that can hinder his work in their lives. I do not believe there's a greater message of grace, hope, and love than what Peter gives in these opening remarks. I would call each one here to stop and examine your heart. Do you see yourself as a sinner lost and without hope apart from the grace offered in Jesus Christ? Do you recognize that without Jesus Christ that you are dead and on the broad road to total destruction? Can you comprehend that your own works will leave you without grace or peace? Do you understand that the only peace possible comes from the actions of God's grace in your heart? If you answer yes to each of these questions, then you can be assured. It is because the light of the world has brightened your heart and God has called you to be one of his chosen. If you cannot answer each yes to each of these questions, then I would call you to stop and listen very closely. The message of hope given to the world is that Jesus Christ was sent from God the Father. He was sent to reveal the wonderful character of our God. He revealed the total darkness of men's hearts and shined his light on them. He lived the perfect life no man could ever live. He died the atoning death to reconcile you to the Father. He defeated through his resurrection the forces of evil that were holding you in bondage. The call from God is to hear and understand these truths. If you will open your ears and hear, if you will open your heart and believe, God will pour out his grace in your life and his peace will flood your soul. And you need to remember, there is no other way to know grace and peace in your life. Jesus Christ alone provides such wonderful assurance. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning because you have given us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Father, we know he is the head of the church. We know your fullness dwells in him. Through him you reconcile us to yourself. We thank you, Father, for such a gift in Christ's name. Amen. Take your hymnals and turn to hymn 164.